I promised you that I would keep bringing something up, so much so that you would get sick of it at some point this year. And so I'm going to do that. Who's your one? Where are you on that? Do you have the card? If you don't, there's cards out in the foyer. You can still pick one up. It comes with 30 days of Scripture reading that goes with it. These are not dated, which means it doesn't matter what day you start. So you're not behind anybody. So pick your card up. Place the name of the person God has laid on your heart, someone whom you believe is not a believer. We're not talking about someone who goes to another church and you'd rather them come to this church. That's not it. This is someone who you believe is not a believer. You put their name on that card. You put the card in a prominent location where you will see it on a regular basis so that you can pray for them. Now, if you already got the card a month ago when we started this, you've done at least that, I hope. You've put the card up and you've been praying. And maybe you're on the verge of that prayer becoming reality and you're getting opportunities to share the gospel with that one that you have committed to try to witness to and see saved this year. So this is not just our campaign. This is a Southern Baptist campaign. Thousands of churches are involved in this. I do not usually do the things the Southern Baptist Convention tell us we are supposed to do, but this time I am. This is a good one. So get involved in who's your one, one reaching one, and if hundreds of us do that, who knows the impact on this church and eternity because of our emphasis in that. Well, again, we are back in 1 John. I forgot to tell you this a few weeks ago. I think I said it in the early service and didn't say it in this service, but I was in Chattanooga late last year. Uh, You know that my uncle had passed away, and so we were down there for the funeral, and I got up early the morning of the funeral. And uh, because we were in a hotel, I had to get out of the room because the rest of the family was asleep. So I found myself a coffee shop in downtown Chattanooga, and I was working on the funeral, which means I had my notepad laid out, I had my Bible open, and I had my uncle's Bible as well, and I was going through all the stuff that he had in his Bible, just sort of looking for clues as to what scripture he might have wanted me to use. And so I had all of that laid out on the table, and this guy sits down at the table next to me. And he says, are you a preacher? And I wanted to go, I mean, what gave it away? I mean, two Bibles and a notepad. I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. And I told him what I was doing. And then he said to me, he said, I've been out of church for a long time, but I have just started a Bible study with some friends of mine that is going to get me back into church. And I said, what are you studying? And he said, we are studying the book of 1 John. And he said, is that a good place to start? And I said, absolutely, that's a wonderful place to start because on the one hand, 1 John is a very basic book. This is the book that all first-year Greek students go through because it is the easiest Greek in all of the New Testament. So on the one hand, it's it's a rather easy book in the sense of its language and how clear it is and what it says. On the other hand, it can be a bit challenging. I'm in a book club with some other pastors in town, and we meet once a month and have lunch and then uh, talk about this book we're reading. And so we had that lunch this past Thursday. And as we're eating lunch, the guy sitting next to me turns to me and goes, so, so what are you preaching through now? And I said, well, I've just started First John. I'm two weeks into First John. And his response was, that book's always intimidated me. I said, why? 
So because of the lack of structure, there's just, it's just hard to figure out where things break and how to outline it. Because as I said two weeks ago, John sort of meanders around. He talks about something, then he goes to something else, then he comes back to what he's already talked about. So there's a lot of ebb and flow in the book of 1 John. And we're going to see some of that this morning because what we're going to talk about today, we mentioned some of last time. And frankly, we're, we're just going to look at the first six verses, but there are others who would, who would cut this off at a different place because it is so very hard to figure out which verses ought to go with a particular sermon. So we are talking this morning about a concept that you are familiar with. However, it might be something that's a little bit vague to you. It's the concept called holiness. Now, we know that word. We've heard that probably most of our lives. In fact, depending on your tradition, that is, what kind of background religiously you grew up in, you may have all kinds of ideas or images in your mind about that word holiness. Maybe it conjures up thoughts of some super spiritual individual that was very, very serious about their relationship with the Lord, but more specifically, serious about avoiding sin, specific sins in general that they had no problem naming to you. And it always came with the biggest Bible they could possibly find that they would carry around with them everywhere they went just to make sure that you know that they know the Lord. On the other hand, we might go to the opposite extreme. We might look at that and we might say, that is not what I want to be. And so we go to the other extreme and we forget about holiness altogether. In essence, after all, we are saved by grace through faith without any mixture of works. And if God is such a gracious God who forgives us, then, then what's the big issue with sin? Who really cares all that much? It doesn't really matter what we do. And so we can go from one extreme to the other and along the way miss the point of what holiness is. Holiness is even a branch of Christianity. There are churches that we call holiness churches. Well, I want to let you know that holiness is not a branch of Christianity. Holiness ought to be a part of every Christian's life. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We are going to see a call to holiness and then we're going to see some tests as to whether or not we are faithfully following that call, some tests of holiness. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we began this, we began by talking about pro proclaiming truth. That is, John is dealing with some false teachers, and he is interacting with them, in essence, as he's writing to those who have remained behind, and he's telling them what the truth is. And then two weeks ago, we went from proclaiming truth to practicing truth. And that is the combination that John is making very clear that it's not just something we say, it must also be something that we live out. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we're really still talking about that. Maybe in different words, but we're still talking about practicing truth. Only this time we're doing so under the title of walking in holiness. 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, if you followed me along closely there, you might say, first of all, the word holiness is not even found in this text. Neither is the word holy. At first glance, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with holiness at all. So why would I say we are talking today about walking in holiness? Well, because that is the topic, whether the word is used or not. John says, I write these things to you, and we saw a couple of weeks ago that he says that multiple times, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. So in this call to holiness, we begin by talking about the fact that a call to holiness means the avoidance of sin. Now, you will recall that John spent the majority of chapter 1 dealing with these false teachers who have left the church and specifically what they are teaching. They are teaching that you can have fellowship with God without really obedience to God. That is, they're saying in some way that it really doesn't matter how you live your life because they have fellowship with God and the rest is either unimportant or certainly not as important as claiming fellowship with God. And then they went on to say that they were actually not committing sin, at least not in the present that it appears that their teaching is since the day that they've met Christ and claim fellowship with him, they are no longer committing any sin. In fact, some people believe that they actually go a step beyond that and deny original sin. So that in that case, they would be saying that they had not sinned in the past and they are not sinning in the present. And so John dealt with that in chapter 1. And so here in chapter 2, he is still dealing with that in essence because in chapter 1 he said that famous verse in verse 8, if we sin, we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he makes clear in chapter 1 that we are not perfect, that we do in fact sin, but we do have someone who forgives us of that sin. Now, like so many doctrines, anytime you emphasize one doctrine, the danger is the opposite. And so if we emphasize the forgiveness of sins, then the danger might just be that we don't take sin seriously. In fact, we joke about that sometimes, don't we? We say things like, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. And so if there's something in our lives that we're not sure whether we should or should not do, we say, oh, go ahead and do it. God will forgive you. It's no big deal. Or we say something like, well, the more I sin, the more grace I experience. After all, if, we're, if, if grace covers all of our sins, then doesn't it mean that the more I sin, the more grace I get? And Paul deals with that in Romans. So after hammering home the forgiveness of sins in chapter 1, John immediately goes to the other side of the equation in chapter 2, and he says, now, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. So don't get the idea that you can sin as much as you want and God will continue to forgive you. God is a forgiving God, but our attitude should not be one of sinning as much as we can. Now, he begins by this term of endearment, my little children. Seven times in this book, he uses that phrase, and this is the first of those seven times. He is writing as a spiritual father to his spiritual children. He is not saying that they are immature. 
He is simply talking about their relationship with one another. They have a bond, and therefore he can write in these terms that share that. And so he's writing to his spiritual children, and he says, you know, we all are going to struggle with sin. That is simply a reality of our lives. And so as we continue to struggle in sin, we need to make sure that we are pursuing holiness. After all, it would be rather easy for us to say, perhaps not verbally, but practically, well, if you say that I'm going to continue to sin, and if you say that that's inevitable, that all of us continue to sin, that none of us are perfect, why should I even try? I mean, why put forth all the effort in avoiding sin? If number one, it is inevitable that I'm going to sin, and if number two, God in Christ is going to forgive me of my sins, why even put all this effort forward? And that is, practically speaking, the way many people are living their lives. But we must be very careful that we neither become too lenient nor too severe when it comes to this issue of avoiding sin. If we are too lenient, it's almost like we are encouraging sin. And again, that's why when we preach the doctrine of grace, that God's grace is greater than all of our sin, we have to be very careful that we teach people Even though all of that's true, it does not give us a license to sin. So on the one hand, we got this license to sin side where it just says, well, anything goes. Because God is a loving God who forgives. But we have to be careful not to go on the other side as well. That is, we can actually be too strict on sin. You say, how is that possible? How can it be possible to be too strict on sin? Well, by that I mean that we become legalistic. And we have a list of sins that maybe aren't even mentioned in the Bible, but they're sins to us and we declare them to everybody else. Or we actually become so strict on sin that we come to the place where we have a hard time embracing the forgiveness of God for us or for someone else. And so we say to someone else, or at least we think it, I don't know, with all you've done, I'm not sure, maybe you've gone too far. Maybe you're past the point of forgiveness. We can actually become so strict that we do not declare the forgiveness of God in Christ for us or for others because we think they have done too much and gone too far. So we need to have this balance. We need to be able to bask in the forgiveness of God in Christ. That is, we need to really understand what it means that we have sinned, but God is a gracious God who forgives us of our sins, and we need to embrace that. Not giving us a license to sin all the more, but embrace the fact that we are indeed forgiven, something we've sung about just a few moments ago. While at the same time, we need to actively pursue an avoidance of sin. Let me give you a few examples of this from the Gospels. There are multiple conversations that Jesus had. For example, he was by the pool of Bethesda. There was the man there who had been crippled for a long time. He could not be healed because someone else would get the healing first, and so Jesus comes and he heals him. But this is what Jesus says afterwards. He said, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, he's telling him, and again, the word holiness is not there, but that's what he's telling him to do. He's saying, I need you to pursue holiness. Likewise, the woman at the well, and you know the background of that story. She had indeed been living a life of sin, and Jesus knew it and called her out on it. And so Jesus forgives her, gives her living water, and then he says this to her, go now and leave your life of sin of sin. Again, same kind of thing. The word holiness not there, but basically that's what he is calling her to do. 
So avoiding sin is part of a call to holiness. And I know that might sound old-fashioned to some of you, but it is a biblical reality that we ought to actively pursue an avoidance of sin. Now, that's difficult, isn't it? You know why it's difficult? Because sin is appealing. Sin, the Bible even says, is pleasurable for a season. You know, if something's not appealing, it's easy to avoid. I hate English peas. They are nasty. I don't like the taste. I don't like the texture. I don't like anything about them. I can live the rest of my life never having another English pea without any temptation whatsoever. In fact, I was in a hospital room this week, and the man whom I was visiting had a little bowl of English peas sitting on his tray, which he had not touched. And so we talked about it. I said, they're nasty. I don't blame you for not touching them. That is absolutely no temptation to me because I don't like it. But the problem with sin is we like it. And that's why it is a temptation. Now, your temptation to a sin might be different than my temptation, but it's a temptation to sin in general terms that is attractive to all of us, and that's what makes it difficult to avoid sin. And yet, that is what we are called to do when we talk about this call to holiness. But it doesn't end there. In fact, if it does end there, we're probably not going to be too successful because sheer willpower and determination is not going to get the job done. In fact, we've said this before. If all you do is think about avoiding something, that's probably what you're going to be thinking about most of the time. So we've got to do more in this call to holiness. There's got to be more than merely avoiding sin, as important as that is, which is why we must move on to the second aspect of the call to holiness, and that is our association with Christ. And these two elements go together so that the more we actively associate with Christ, the less we find sin appealing. The more we abide in Christ, the more we remain in Christ, the more we love and follow Christ, as we'll talk about in a moment, the less sin appeals to us, and therefore, the easier it is to avoid. So while I'm talking about two different points, these two do, in fact, go together. So John tells us three things about this Christ whom we are to associate with. He says, if anybody does sin, and that's not a conditional statement, by the way. We tend to think of it in English as a conditional statement. Well, if perhaps one of you is going to sin or some of you is going to sin, no, the Bible's very clear, all of us sin and continue to sin. So he's not making a conditional statement. If by chance you happen to sin, then there's a remedy. No, he's saying, since you are going to sin, we have a remedy. Our remedy is our association with Christ. And he says three things about this association. Number one, he says Christ is our advocate. The word literally means one called alongside of. It is a word that is sometimes used in the legal sense to call or to refer to what we would call today a defense attorney. But in the non-legal sense, it simply refers to someone who speaks on behalf of someone else, someone who who is called alongside to help. And by the way, this is the same word. You know this word. You just don't know that you know this word. This is the same word that's used four other times in the New Testament to refer to the Holy Spirit. In fact, every other time, it does refer to the Holy Spirit. This is the only time in Scripture that this word is used to refer to Jesus Christ. Every other time, it refers to the Holy Spirit. Jesus was talking to his disciples, trying to comfort them. They had just 
been given word. They were just coming to terms with the fact that he was going to leave them, and therefore they were anxious about that and didn't quite know how to handle that news. And so Jesus tells them, I'm going to send you another comforter, another helper. That's the word that we find here. So here's what we have. We have, while we live on this earth, we have the other comforter, one like him, that is this other comforter is similar to Jesus, who has come alongside to help us. We have that in our heart in the person of the Holy Spirit. So you and I have a helper in our heart, the Holy Spirit. But in this text, we are being told that we have another helper who is in heaven, and that helper is the person of Jesus Christ, who is there in heaven as our advocate. Now, when we think about a defense lawyer pleading our case before a judge, if we use that imagery, we might just get some wrong impressions. For one thing, if you happen to go to trial, I trust you don't have to, but if you happen to need a defense attorney, your defense attorney and the judge will not have a close relationship with one another. If they do, the judge will have to recuse himself from the trial. That's not fair. You can't have an attorney and a judge who have such a tight relationship. But Jesus does have a tight relationship, obviously, with God the Father. They are on the same side. We can get the picture of Jesus pleading with his Father for our acquittal. That is, as we use the term defense attorney, we can get the idea that that Jesus is up there going, please, Father, forgive them. I know you don't really want to, but do it anyway for me. That's not what this defense attorney is doing. Jesus and God the Father are on the same page. He is not trying to sway a reluctant judge. He's talking to the judge that set the whole plan of redemption in motion. And furthermore, Jesus is not arguing for our innocence. He is not trying to come up with a clever way to convince his father that you didn't really do what his father thinks you did. Instead, he's admitting your guilt. Yes, Father, I know that he or she is guilty. However, I have paid the price with my blood. So he is admitting our guilt, and yet he is saying, I am standing in their place. They are guilty, but I have taken their place. And that is why Paul can write in Romans, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is he uh, who justifies. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. The same idea that we find here of Christ being our advocate. So every Christian here this morning needs to know that you have a helper in heaven. When we do sin, we have an advocate whose name is Jesus Christ. And he's not pleading our uh, guilt He's not pleading our innocence, I should say. He's pleading our guilt, and he's paying the penalty for us. But the second thing he says about Jesus is that he is the righteous one. He is righteous. Now, normally when we think of righteousness, at least if you've been around here long enough, I hope you think about the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That is, you tend to think when you think of righteousness, and sometimes we think of it as, a, as daily living, a, a right way of living, and that's an accurate use of the term. But sometimes we also think about the righteousness of Christ, this great exchange, that Jesus Christ took my sins upon himself so that he might impute, that is, give me a righteousness that was foreign to me. 
so that now you and I as believers can stand before God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And all of that is true, and it's beautiful pictures, but it's not exactly what John's talking about here. He's not talking about the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. He's talking about the fact that Jesus himself is righteous. It's very similar to what we saw in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we saw, again, in that great verse, that God is faithful and just. And we said that meant that God is a God who keeps his promises. He is going to be faithful to do what he said he's going to do, and yet he can be just at the same time, which is what the cross is all about, the love and mercy of God meet. And here he is saying that Jesus is the righteous one, which means we can trust his work on our behalf. This is not a shady defense attorney who is trying to sway the judge for his own purposes or his career or even for money. No, Jesus is a righteous one who is speaking the truth to God the Father, standing in on our behalf. Now, the third thing, the third thing's a little bit more difficult. He is not only our advocate, he is not only the righteous one, But the ESV says that he is our propitiation, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that word mean? This word has received considerable attention from scholars. And as the ESV does, many believe it does have the idea primarily of propitiation, which is a word that means to appease the wrath of God. It was a word that was very common in secular uh, Greek, a word that was common in pagan religions. That is, most every religion at the time, and many still today, believe that somehow you have to appease the wrath of God, that God is angry with sinners for the way they're living their lives, and therefore that wrath must be satisfied or appeased, and so you have to do something in, in p- pagan religions. You have to offer up a sacrifice. You have to, to, to do some sort of service or work. There's got to be something you do or sacrifice in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Again, that's in pagan religions religions. I'm not talking about Christianity here. Others believe that this, idea, that this word has the idea of expiation, propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God, or expiation, that is the removal of guilt from the sinner and the purifying of their heart. So it's two different things, propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God. Expiation is a different word that means taking away the guilt from the sinner. And then some translations try to combine these two things by saying, he is our atoning sacrifice. So rather than try to determine which one this context is referring to, they just use atoning sacrifice to bring in both elements. That is, the atonement is something made for sin, and a sacrifice is an offering to God. I know that's a little bit difficult, and it can be hard to keep those terms in place, but what does all that mean? It means that he is the means by which our sins are forgiven. It is not just that he is our advocate, though he is. But he is not only the advocate, he is righteous, and therefore he is able to be our expiation or propitiation, our atoning sacrifice who not only satisfies the wrath of God, and I know many people don't like the idea that God was angry with sinners, but it's biblical, 
who is also the one who at the same time can remove the guilt from us because he has paid the price himself. And in doing so, he has demonstrated God's love for mankind and satisfied the wrath of God for sin, which all of that is a mouthful, but it is a blessing. And so you say, but for whose sins? Well, on the one hand, I'm glad you asked because John answers, but John's answer is difficult. Look again at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Again, he's writing to believers in the church, so he's saying he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, now we have a problem, John. What do you mean that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? This is not the only place where we find this kind of language. You remember in the Gospels where John is there with some of his disciples, and it's right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus comes up, and John gives that great statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. So there's this universal language that's found there and here. Now, it's universal language, but here's what I want to warn you about. It is not universalism. Universalism is the idea, the theology, that everybody somehow, some way, some path will all be saved. You know, it doesn't really matter what path you go down. Universalism says that God is a loving God who is going to somehow, though we may not know how, God is somehow going to save everyone. That is not what John is teaching here. I mean, how could he be teaching that when he's writing this book? This letter is designed to encourage those who are still in the church, but at the same time, it's designed to to separate those who are making a profession of faith and yet not really practicing it. And he's consistently saying that if you profess and don't practice, then you don't really possess. So John is clearly writing a letter here that is dividing between those who genuinely have salvation and those who don't. So he is not saying that everyone is going to be saved. This past Wednesday, we're going through Acts. We were in chapter 4, and there is that wonderful verse in Acts chapter 4 that says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. No name but Jesus can bring salvation, something Jesus himself said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We teach an exclusive gospel. And we teach it because that's what the Bible teaches, that there is only one way to God, even though that is countercultural to everything else that's going on, we maintain the exclusive nature of the gospel. Now, anybody can be saved who trusts in Christ, but only those who trust in Christ are saved. And so John is not teaching universalism here. So what is he teaching? Well, that's a little harder. The more common answer, or the most common answer, is to say that what this means is that the atonement of Christ is sufficient for all. That is, it's it's available, it, it, it satisfies any who come to faith in Christ. It's sufficient for all. But it is efficient or applicable only for those who put their faith in Christ. So it's it's wide enough to cover everybody. But we know it doesn't cover everybody because not all put their faith and trust in Christ. 
Now, there are other answers to this. There are other options, and I don't have the time to go into all of those. I just want to caution you about reading this as universalism because that is clearly not what John is going for here. So as long as we don't teach that or believe that from this verse, we'll be all right because we know that not all are saved, only those who exercise faith in Christ. And so those who do accept Christ by faith receive forgiveness of sins and assurance of salvation. And such forgiveness and assurance is not based on what we do. What we do is evidence of the fact that we actually possess that. So we are called to holiness, not to gain our salvation. We are called to holiness as a consequence, as an evidence of our salvation. And this call to holiness has two aspects to it. The avoidance of sin, that is we are actively striving to avoid sin. But that's just part of it. We are also actively striving to associate with Christ. That is who we turn to. That is who we flee to because he is our advocate. He is the righteous one and he is our atoning sacrifice. And so we move to the second point. Well, you say, how do I know if that's what I'm doing? There is this call to holiness, but what are the marks? What are the evidences or what are the tests of holiness? If we are called to it, How can I look at my life and see whether or not I am walking in holiness? Or we could ask the more general question, how can I know that I really know God? I mean, the New Testament is very clear that there are always those who profess faith but don't really have it. We know by experience that is still true in our own day. So how can I know, how can you know that your faith is genuine versus someone else whose is not? Well, John gives us three tests here. And again, we could have gone further in the verses and come up with more, but I have to cut it off somewhere. So the first test we must pass is the test of obeying God's commands. Verse 3, and by this we know. Okay, how do we know? How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. If we claim to know God but don't obey his commands, then John calls us a liar. And this is the second time in two chapters that he has called us liars, if that is the case for us. Now, again, there are fear among many people that if we constantly talk about forgiveness of sins, if we constantly talk about the grace of God freely offered to sinners, then people will take advantage of that. If something's too good to be true, they will take advantage of it. And so people might just say, well, I'll accept that. I'll trust in Jesus. Therefore, I can go to heaven when I die, and I can sin as much as I please along the way. Well, if that's your philosophy, then you do not understand the forgiveness of God that you claim to have, because truly knowing the forgiveness of God does not lead to a license to sin. It leads to a desire to be obedient. Now, obviously, most any religion religion teaches the knowledge of God. That is, whatever the religion, ancient or modern, there is this desire to know God. But oftentimes, a knowledge of God is divorced from or separated from ethics or morality. One can know God simply through the study or contemplation of God without it really affecting your life, so many teach. Remember I said at the very beginning, there was this thing in the second century that many believe is is beginning in the first century, and we see evidences of it in some of the New Testament books called Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word for to know And so there was this teaching in its very early forms that knowledge was what was most important. 
So there were these super spiritual who knew all about God, but it didn't really matter how they lived their lives. Knowledge was the most important thing. And I'm certainly not undermining knowledge. We talk about that all the time, how we need to know God through the reading and studying of God's Word. We had Dr. Danny Aiken here last week, as I mentioned, president for 16 years of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. When he first took over that school, I don't think he uses the slogan anymore, but when he first took over that school, his vision, his slogan for the seminary was this, the head, the heart, and the hands. Now, what does that mean? I mean, you would expect a seminary to just stick with the head, right? I mean, a seminary's job is to teach young men and women the Word of God so that they can minister in the name of God. And so you say their goal is the head. But he was saying, no, it's a threefold, head, the heart, and the hands. The head is, of course, the knowledge about God. The heart is the passion for God. And the hands is the service or ministry on behalf of God. And so if a seminary just teaches about the head, If they just fill young men with the knowledge of God, they will produce the very things John is arguing against here. They will produce men like John is fighting in this letter who care only about knowledge. So John is saying, how do I know that I know God? Well, number one, you know it by your obedience to God's commands. Now, again, this is not the path to salvation. It is evidence of salvation. And nobody is talking about perfectly Uh, fulfilling the commands of God. None of us are capable of doing that. But he is talking about a lifestyle, a walk, a desire to live in obedience to God. Adrian Rogers, the longtime pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, said, study the Bible to know about God. Obey the Bible to really know God. Yes, we ought to study the Word of God. That's what we're doing now. That's what we encourage you to do personally and in small groups and in larger corporate gatherings. We are to study the Word of God, to know God. But he says, study the Bible to know about God, but obey the Bible to really know God. Both are necessary, and they must not be separated. So if you claim to know God, but it's made no real impact upon your life, There's no ongoing transformation. There's no behavioral changes. You have reason to doubt your profession of faith in God. Again, not perfectly. Nobody's talking about complete obedience, but a pattern of obedience. The second test of holiness is not only obedience to God's command, but loving God completely. Whoever says, I know him, verse 4, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And again, that doesn't mean perfect. It means it's complete. It's, It's growing. So these two things, once again, go together. The more we know God, the more we love God. Now, there is some debate here as to what kind of love we're talking about. Are we talking about God's love for us or our love for God? And I think in this context, it's talking about our love for God, though, of course, we remember that we only love God because he first loved us. So you could, in that sense, say that both are included. But God loves us. We then are to love him in return. The more we know him, the more we love him. True knowledge of God is demonstrated by obedience And the more we are uh, knowing of God, the more we love God. It's not merely about saying we love God. It is not merely about singing of our love for God. That's rather easy to do. Mark gets up here and tells us what song we're singing. 
And we're to sing about the love we have for God. That's rather easy on our behalf. But it is not just singing nor saying. It is showing. Imagine, and this is Valentine's week, right? Valentine's is Friday. Imagine your husband says every single day, I love you. Say, well, that is an imagination because I sure wish he would. But I'm talking about an illustration here. Imagine he says every day, I love you. But he hardly ever comes home. I mean, he thinks of every excuse not to come home. He works late. He goes out with the guys. He does everything possible to not to be at home. And oh, by the way, he's constantly dating other women. Now, do you think his statement that he loves you is going to override his actions and what he's doing? No, you're going to say, clearly you don't love me because you're not showing it. John is saying that if we are going to test, pass this test of holiness, we are going to have to not only know God, but we are going to have to be growing in our love for God, which then, and all these things go together, which then leads us, thirdly, to following the example of God. Verse 6, whoever said he abides in me, and John 15 is the key passage for abiding in Christ, whoever said he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is, we are to live in obedience, and we are to grow in our love of God, all of which will lead us to walk in the manner in which Christ walked, which, as we're saying today, is a walk of holiness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, one of the few who defied the Nazis and paid for it with his life, said this, Only he who believes is obedient. That is, an unbeliever is not going to be obedient to Christ. They don't know Christ. They don't know his word. They're not going to be obedient. So only he who believes is obedient. But that's not the whole quote. Then he sort of turns it around and says, only he who is obedient believes. In other words, you show your obedience or you show your belief by your obedience, by your following of the example of Christ. In other words, not to earn salvation. And I know I keep emphasizing that because I don't want some misunderstanding. We don't do this to to earn our salvation. We do it to demonstrate that we genuinely are saved. Following Christ is personal. Nobody can do it in your stead. Your spouse cannot do it for you. Your parents cannot do it for you. We all must make this decision on our own and choose to walk as he walked. It is a personal thing. It is also active, meaning that we are to continually and consistently do this. I know we have to have the Holy Spirit. I know the Scripture says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm not divorcing what I'm saying from all of that. But I am saying there is an active element to this that you and I must determine that we are going to heed the call to holiness and we are going to follow as Christ lived. Which then means that following is going to be costly. Jesus said it over and over again. We saw it in Mark's gospel. Take up your cross and follow me. But ultimately, following Christ, walking as he walked, is going to be beneficial because we are going to be where he is so that Jesus can say, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. That is the ultimate end of walking in holiness. Not because we deserve it, but because in his grace, he gives it. So there is a call to holiness 
And that call to holiness means that we need to uh, strive to abandon sin. But that's just half of it. We also must strive to associate with Christ. We must flee to Christ if we expect to overcome sin. And then we've looked at three tests. Obeying God's commands, loving God completely, and following God's example. So are you walking in holiness? I don't mean do you think you are. I don't mean did you have some experience in the past. I mean based on what John says here of what holiness is and the test that he lays out, are you walking in holiness? I pray you are. And I pray that if you're not, you'll see your sin this morning and desire to repent and come to faith in Christ. Let me pray.